is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Tuesday, October 10th, 2023. And today will be better than yesterday. Uh, yesterday was really great. I'm Buster Only, uh, working from my hotel in Bristol, Connecticut. I'm in, uh, in Bristol doing Baseball Tonight on ESPN every single day. Uh, we've got Taylor Schwink. We have Sarah Abbott with us. How much fun was that game last night, Taylor? Oh, my God. Best game so far of the postseason. I, you know, people are saying, oh, it's been kind of boring. Uh, but, I mean, I think it's good, been good, and that just really took things up a, a level. That's That's been everything you wanted, Buster. Yeah. Sarah, I was going to ask you about your Phillies losing that game. But I'm going to ask you more about, have you noticed Taylor with the Orioles down 2-0 today? He's got a whole rally cap thing going on. He does. His hat is currently, for those who, I mean, we are on an audio podcast, so you can't see, the bill of his hat is flipped up, which I believe is covering the Orioles logo. Is that what's happening, Taylor? It's inside out, too. So inside out, upside down, backwards. Shout out to Wendy. She taught me that back in the day at Camden Yards. Yeah, yeah, last night was so exciting. So much drama, which was awesome. Um, very sad that, you know, it didn't go in our favor and momentum has shifted a bit, but we'll bounce back, you know? I, I thought your Phillies were in a great position last night. They took an early lead. Top of the first inning, Alec Bohm gave the Phillies the 1-0 lead. First one to Bohm. Swing and a line drive. Base hit out of the left center field. Turner had to hold up. They're still going to send him. He's around third. He's on his way to the plate. In to score Trey Turner. Alec Bohm, a first pitch RBI single. And the Phillies have jumped in front. It is one to nothing. Now, he was in support of Zach Wheeler, who was absolutely dominant. This is what it sounded like in the bottom of the second inning as Wheeler struck out the side. And the one-two. Strike three on the outside corner, and Ben May rings up Ozuna. Here's the 2 Swing and a miss. Struck him out, and Wheeler gets star no. That is five strikeouts for Zach Wheeler, and there's two away. 2-2. Swing and a miss. Struck him out. How about Zach Wheeler? He's gotten all six outs via the strikeout. The Phillies increase their lead from 1-0 to 3-0 in the top of the third inning. The 2-0. Swing and a high fly ball drilled out towards right center field. That one's back on its way and it's gone. Home run, JT Real Muto into the bullpen in right center field. Real Muto will touch them all and the Phillies now lead it three to nothing. Yeah, Max Freed was just not right last night. He hadn't pitched in 18 days. He didn't really have very good command. That sound, by the way, Book Shambi on ESPN Radio. We talked about the Phillies being more aggressive on the bases. That happened with Nick Castellanos in the top of the fifth. One out, man at first. Yates delivers. There goes the runner. The pitch is low. Throw to second. Is too high. Over the head of Arcia into center field. Castellanos gets up, and he'll make it to third without a throw. So it's a stolen base and then E2. So the Phillies extend their lead to 4-0. This is what it sounded like, bottom of the fifth inning. Zach Wheeler, no hitter in progress. Two and one down. Wheeler fires. Swing and a ground ball to the right side. Stott charges in into his right. Throws to first. They get Rosario. And the Braves have now gone 14 innings without scoring. That is the longest stretch of the season. As the bottom of the six began, the win probability for the Phillies, 94%. But Ozzie Albies broke up the no-hitter. The pitch. Swing and a line drive and a base hit. That's into right field. Castellanos up with it. Throw to second. Acuna will stop at third. Throw gets away from Turner. Acuna scrambling in and he'll score. In the bottom of the seventh inning, Travis Darno, an underrated postseason performer, went deep to cut it to four to three. Here's Darno now, the pitch. Swing and a high drive. Left field. That one back. That one's gone. Home run, Travis Darnell over the 375 marker. And just like that, the Braves are within one. Here was the call in the bottom of the eighth inning when Austin Riley gave the Braves the lead. Everybody on their feet at Truist Park. Acuna third, two down, three and two. Four, three Phillies, bottom eight. The pitch to Riley. Swing and a high fly ball. Left field. That one back towards the wall. That one is gone. Austin Riley. It's a two-run homer, and the Braves have the lead. Here's the pitch. 
swing and a high fly ball drilled out towards center field. That one back, back some more. Harris at the wall and he makes the catch. Racing back to first is Harper as the throw comes in. Cut off, throw to first, double play. Oh my goodness. Harris's throw got away from Albies, but Riley was there. And the game ends on an 8-5-3 double play. Holy cow. Holy cow, the legend. Boog, you knew the call would be great. Uh, there were several good calls out of last night's game. Brian Anderson's call on TBS. Uh, I can't wait to hear you know, the uh, the Braves radio home call from uh, from ben, ben Ingram. We're going to have a chance later in the podcast. Oh, yeah. I think one of our Bleacher tweeters wrote in about it. They want to hear it. We'll okay. give the people what they want. Well, an amazing finish and a big comeback win for the Atlanta Braves. We talked about Ali versus Frazier. This was Ali coming off the ropes for Braves winning game two after being down 4-0. Austin Riley talked after the game about his go-ahead homer in the bottom of the eighth inning. The only thing I was thinking of is I know there's a short fence down there. <laughs> Hopefully it gets over it. And, and luckily they did. And just, you know, like I said, you just try to take those moments in because, you know, postseason special. It's it's awesome, awesome time of year, awesome baseball. And like I said, do it with these guys. Um you know, we fight 162 games out of the year, uh, plus spring. We're with each other so much, so just trying to try to enjoy it with them as, as much as possible. Austin talked about that game-ending play when he cut off the ball, that uh, the overthrow from the outfield. And I was just screaming one, one, one as loud as I could, um, and just trying to read, see where the ball was going. Um, and, and like I said, I think it was just one of those things where right, right place, right time. Yeah, I texted after the game. I love hearing Austin Riley's voice. You can tell he's all hoarse from all the yelling and all the excitement. I texted after the game with a member of the Braves coaching staff. I'll be talking about that with Tim Kirchin, Alex Avila coming up. Brian Sitker, the Braves manager, talked about that final double play. So much it went through my mind. I mean, I didn't know if he's going to run out of room. Um, then after he caught it, you know, it's kind of you go hoarse yelling. And uh, great play by Austin. Great play by Michael, number one, but then the wherewithal of Austin, um, you know, to be continuing to watch the play and then make the big out. He talked about his hitters at bats against the dominant Zach Wheeler. Honestly, I don't say anything to him. I mean, they're, you know, they know what they're up against. They've faced him before. They know how good he is. Um, I just have faith in those guys that they're, they're you know what, they're, they give you a hard 27. I mean, even if the first few of them aren't, you know, they're, they're never going to stop fighting in the batter's box. And, you know, they, they, they know what a, a tough matchup that is with that guy because he's, like I say, he's one of the game's best. So Travis Darno is sneaky great in the postseason. He's played a lot of postseason games. He's had a lot of success, and he talked about this particular game. You know, every playoff win's exciting. I think the way it ended was one of the most exciting games, ending two games I've ever seen as far as a defensive standpoint, where you got Money Mike making a crazy catch on the wall and um, us doubling up Harper to, to close it out. It was really emotional, especially the way we came back. So it was one of, the, one of my favorite postseason games ever. ever. Michael Harris the second and made that great catch. Talked about the play at the end of the game. Uh, I just saw Cassianos put a put a good swing on it. I knew I was gonna have to make a play at the wall. And uh, once I caught it, I didn't know I didn't know uh, Bryce made it around second. I thought he was halfway, and I just had to get it in before he got there. But uh, I guess everybody was in the right spot, right time, and uh, made the play to end it. Yeah, when he was first asked about this, he talked about blacking out. <laughs> like it was so much excitement, like there was sensory overload for him. Rob Thompson, the Phillies manager, talked about Harper's decision to round second base. Uh, usually you don't pass the, the base. You stay in front of it, uh, make sure it's not caught. But he thought the ball was clearly over his head. Uh, didn't think he was going to catch it. And Harris made a heck of a play. I mean, unbelievable. So, um he tried to get back and he slipped and you know but usually you stay in front of the second base he talked about the defeat in game two it's a little disappointing you know you get up four nothing on these guys and you had some opportunities to break it open and you didn't and they come back and score we didn't score in the last four innings of the game so that's a little disappointing but hey you know now we've not, we've got home field advantage now and and really that's what you're looking for after after these two games Taylor, how about the uh, the understated Canadian and it, Rob Thompson's response to that? Law? Eh, it's a little disappointing. You know what? We've got uh, we've got two games at home. We have home field advantage. Sarah Abbott's uh, you know favorite ballpark. 
That was pretty. I love hearing Rob Thompson and his calm. Yes. Meh, we'll get back to it next game. You know, no big deal. No big deal. That's by Rob Thompson. I love it. That's how he is, by the way. That is not like, it's not like he's in his office and he's like having to work on that. Like his acting skills. That's how he is all the time. And it feels like his players respond to it. There's a little bit of that from the Phillies players. Bryce Harper talked about getting doubled off first and the game. Yeah, I mean, just taking a chance. Um, Michael made a great play uh, and doubled me up. So, tough way to end it. Yeah. Total respect in what he was saying. He talked about taking the series going back to Philly. You know, you absolutely want to come in and, and go too well, right? Um, but we did our job. You know, we went one-on-one, one and we're going back home to, to play two in front of our home crowd, and um, I think we're all looking forward to that. He was asked specifically about the base running player, what he should or shouldn't have done. Taylor, if you play 838, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I mean, he's, he made a good play. You know, I probably shouldn't have gone over second base, um, but, you know, made a decision, and, you know, I'll live with that. He was asked more about the ninth inning. Yeah, I mean, just taking a chance. Um, Michael made a great play uh, and doubled me up, so tough way to end it. So you were not surprised that they did not have the Iglesias start the inning against you using your numbers? Yeah, I mean, Iglesias is good. I mean, in any spot, you can anything can happen. So um, we had an opportunity with me getting on first base right there, and uh, just didn't happen. Where you were when he caught it? Um, did you know your? Did you think you had a shot to get back, or did you kind of know you were? You were... Yeah, I mean, he's, he made a good play. You know, I probably shouldn't have gone over second base, um, but you know, made a decision, and you know, I'll live with that. Yeah. So I mean, you hear his answers repeated a couple times. That's the way it is in the postseason because you have all these writers sort of. Uh, cycling in that haven't heard the answers before. Uh, Sarah, I loved Harper after the game. You know, he, he made a mistake. He owned it, moved on, total respect for the other team, but he's also feeling good about your chances. I love the accountability and I love the composure. You know, they're yes. just like, hey, we got this. It's fine. We got this. We're going home. It's going to be great. Yeah, I'm sure that Zach Wheeler was the same. I haven't heard this sound, but I'm sure he was when he was asked about the frustrating the frustration of a game two loss. It's frustrating, but like I said, I, I kind of let them get the momentum going, and you know that's my fault. So you know, I let them right back in the game, and uh, it's tough. But you know what? Now we're going to Philly, and we're going to play at our place. So that series is one all as it moves to Philadelphia. The Diamondbacks and Dodgers played game two, and Christian Walker gave the Diamondbacks a lead in the top of the first. The pitch. Swing and a ball hit out towards center, going back is Altman, twisting and turning, and he makes a leaping catch and crushes into the wall. In center field, the runners tag Marte to third, coming in to score is Carroll. That was Roxy Bernstein on ESPN Radio. The Diamondbacks extended the lead. Miller the 2-1, swing and a liner to center, and a base hit for Gurriel. Fan being waved around third, he'll score as Altman Throws it back into the infield. An RBI single with two outs for Gurriel. And a three-run first for the Diamondbacks. And that will draw a mound visit from the pitching coach, Mark Pryor. Yeah, Mark Pryor going out talking to the starting pitcher again. We talked going into the postseason how the Dodgers had to overcome their lack of starting pitching. Well, we're two games into the postseason, and they're two starters. Clayton Kershaw in game one, Bobby Miller in game two. Nine runs allowed in two innings. It was 3-0 Arizona, bottom of the fourth inning, and this happened. Gallon the 3-2 to Martinez. Swing and a fly ball to right. Going back is Carroll. He's onto the track. At the wall. Leaps. It's gone. A home run. Towering fly ball to right that just squeaked out of here. And the Dodgers are on the board. So the Dodgers constantly had runners on base, but the Diamondbacks constantly pitched out of it. Here's Zach Gallon against Freddie Freeman at the end of the fifth. Gallon, 3-2 to Freeman. And it's strike three called another curve and a big pump of the fist and a scream from Gallon leaving them out of the first base dugout. The Dodgers strand two. The big strikeout of Freeman to end the bottom of the fifth. The Diamondbacks extended their lead in the top of the sixth. The 1-2. Swing and a ball hit in the air to left. Going back is Peralta. Out of the track. It is gone. A home run. Straight away left for Lourdes Gurriel Jr. Into the second row of the bleachers. His first home run of the postseason. And the Diamondbacks leading 4-1. An underrated hero in this game for the Diamondbacks. Ryan Thompson came out of the bullpen to get Freddie Freeman at the end of the seventh. Walker holding bets, good size lead for Mookie at first, the pitch, swing and reaching for it, a ground at a second, fielded by Marte, to Perdomo, the turn, two, double play, nicely turned by the Diamondbacks. 
This is what it sounded like at the end of the game. Seawald, the 1-0. And Wong swings in the air to center, hit right toward Alec Thomas, who makes a casual one-handed catch. Ball game over, and the Diamondbacks have come to Dodger Stadium, and they've won each of the first two in this division series. They win game two by a final of 4-2, and Arizona now going home up two games to none on the 100-win L.A. Dodgers. So we were on baseball tonight when Dave Roberts uh, came on and uh, his press con- post-game press conference uh, came on, and I was surprised at how blunt he was in talking about his players. Give it a listen. You know, I, I didn't. I didn't love the uh, the the pitch selection. Um, you know, there were some balls out of the zone, and there were some uh, borderline balls or pitches that you know we offered at that you know we didn't give ourselves a chance to get into counts. And so, you know, I saw you know some expansion, uh, some pitches that were pitchers' pitches that we we offered at. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of, that's just uh, what I saw. And um, we had opportunities, but, you know, when you get opportunities, you got you to cash in. Yeah, for manager speak and coach speak, Taylor, that was, that was unusual to hear someone be like, yep, we had terrible at-bats in so many words. <laughs> yeah, he, and he's another guy that's pretty even-keeled and really not into, uh, you know, act, acting out is a bad way to put it, but lashing out at his players, not, not a typical Dave Roberts. That's exactly right. All right. Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN. Get great deals on the hottest tickets. Experience it live. Hot Tickets today, those in Minnesota and Texas, because the Astros play the Twins at 4.07 p.m. Eastern time on ESPN Radio. Orioles at Rangers, that's 8.03 Eastern time on ESPN Radio. Today, we've got Kristen Javier of the Astros against Sonny Gray. And here's what Sonny Gray had to say. They were incredible last time we were at home. We expect nothing less. They're going to be incredible again. Having said that, coming into the game 1-1, coming back to Minnesota, it's a big opportunity for for us to go out there and play a good, play a hard-fought competitive game. I'm excited for this. The Orioles have faced the Rangers, and Brandon Hyde talked about the mountain his team needs to climb. Definitely must win for us tomorrow. Definitely backs are against the wall, and we haven't played our best baseball the first two games, and hopefully we can play play well tomorrow. But... um, Everybody will be, hand, all hands will be on deck tomorrow, and you know, hopefully Dean can give us some innings get a nice start for us. Dean Kramer starts for the Orioles against Nathan Avaldi. Kramer started for Team Israel in the WBC. He's got family in Israel who he says are safe. He talked about that in speaking with the reporters on Monday. Almost every single person in the clubhouse has come in and checked on me at, at, at some point over the last two, you know, 48 hours, um, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, is there a hesitation? No, I, I, st- I still want to pitch, but, I mean, it's, it's going to be in the back of my head. A couple other notes before we go. The Red Sox have fired pitching coach Dave Bush, third base coach Carlos Fables. A lot of teams now are making these decisions about their coaching staff going forward. The Nationals, according to reports, will not bring back four coaches, bench coach Tim Bogart, third base coach Gary DeSarcina, first base coach EY Jr., Eric Young Jr., and assistant hitting coach Pat Ressler, pitching coach Jim Hickey, will return. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, a new episode of the College Game Day podcast. In the vein of uh, you're in uh, Boog's philosophy, 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 your your conversation yesterday about pitching scripts versus feel for the game. um, They had a good conversation on that show about when firing a coordinator makes sense and like what, like, is it really going to impact your team? Do you have a defensive play caller on your staff that can actually fill the job, you know, in in regards to USC and Alex Grinch? So um, I thought it was a a nice conversation, something that I think you would have enjoyed uh, had you been on that show, Buster. So check it out. You know what? Maybe uh, maybe uh, we can make that happen. Happen at some point, and I can t- share all my Vanderbilt football lore with them. Oh, I would love a crossover episode in the offseason. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sure that they want to hear all my Whit Taylor stories. <laughs> for the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, 
and pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus chews. They're the one and done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. Seam heads rejoice. This is Timmy time. Baseball is the greatest game. With Tim Kirkson. It never disappoints you. On Baseball Tonight. Tim Kirkchen covers baseball for ESPN, Tim, and uh, I'm not even going to beat around the bush about this one. How much fun was that Braves-Phillies game last night? Uh, that was tremendous. The Braves had won, like, one of their last 50 games where they were four runs down in the sixth inning, and they came back to win that game. Uh, the Austin Riley homer, I'm still not sure. I mean, how strong is that guy? The ball was away <laughs> from him. It was down. It was part one-handed. He hit a home run, and not many postseason games have ever finished quite like that one did with a sensational double play like that. It was an amazing game, and this is why October baseball is the best, is we see stuff like this. We just slap our foreheads and say, how in the world could that have happened? So in a few minutes, we're going to be talking with our friend Sarah Lang. She texted me uh, after the game last night that in the sixth inning, when the Phillies led four to nothing and Zach Wheeler was dealing, he wasn't allowing any hits, uh, the win probability for the Phillies was 94%. And Tim, it felt like it was 99.9% to me. Right. Like, I didn't think there's any way the Phillies would lose that game. All right. So maybe this tells us more than a lot more about the Braves, even though we all thought we knew about the Braves. The Phillies are that one team that's so dangerous and, you know, they've got the Braves number. I know I'm not buying any of that. I love the Phillies. I love the way they play. But maybe the Braves have a little bit more grit than people think. Maybe the three, they're more than just a team that hit 307 homers. Maybe the Braves are even better than we thought. And last night was a perfect example of that. So let's run through some of the particulars in this game. I got to say, as I was watching this uh, plate appearance, I'm going to ask Alex Avila about this coming up. Why in the world would the Phillies throw him a slider right there? They'd been beating him consistently with fastballs. Well, that was a bit surprising, but again, Buster, this is postseason, and this is the only sport where you can break down one pitch. You know, there's no time in an NBA game to say, you know, why was Jordan on magic there in for that 30 seconds in the third quarter? It There's too many plays going on to really understand that, but in baseball, you have time out of a game in which there are 250 pitches thrown, you can take one and say, what happened here? It happens all the time in baseball. The slow pace of the game allows us to break it down immediately. And then the next day and for years and years later. All right. We're only going to break down this part of the play that ended the game. Uh, Michael Harris's catch. I, you know, was thinking last night as I watched that it, he is as comfortable as any outfielder I've seen going back toward the warning track, to the fence, any outfielder I've seen since Ken Griffey Jr. I mean, there is just an ease with him about understanding where he is on the field in a way that you don't see with a lot of outfielders. That was part of the reason why that catch was so phenomenal. What would you right. think? Um, as soon as that ball went up, just watch it one more time. He had that thing tracked immediately. He knew yes. exactly where it was going to end up. He knew exactly where he had to be and what was going to happen. He knew he was going to hit the fence at that angle. Um, that was a great defensive play by a great young center fielder. Nobody, but nobody went back on a ball better than Andrew Jones did in his days with the, with the uh, Braves. But Michael, Michael Harris made that play and won the game with it. But I repeat, he knew exactly. He's seen that enough times that he knows I'm going to catch this ball the minute it went up. Bryce Harper owned what uh, he said was a mistake on base running on that play. He said, it, said he should have stopped at second base. 
You've talked about base running uh, in the majors for a long time. What did you think of that? Well, I've seen way worse than that. But, yes, you're taught you you have to be able to get back to first play, base on that play. You cannot be doubled up on that play to end a playoff game. And you have to recognize that Michael, Michael Harris is in center field. He might catch this ball. So you can't go past second base and risk getting doubled up there. I've seen so many base running mistakes, way more egregious than that. That was typical Bryce Harper playing at 1,000 miles an hour, which is great. That's him playing with anger, which is great. But on that play, you stop short a second, and then you figure it out. Because you might score anyway if the ball drops instead, and you're going to be a third with less than two outs. Instead, the game's over. So when Austin Riley uh, came rushing in to pick up that overthrow from Michael Harris, from the outfield that, uh, you know, went past Orlando Arcia, went past Ozzie Albies, immediately thought back to all those moments uh, that I've seen before games. You've seen it where the Braves infielders are drilling and Ron Washington is talking to him and talking to him and talking to them. Um, you know, Austin Riley comes in, picks up the ball, makes a great off-balance throw to first base, doubles off Bryce Harper. I texted Wash after the game and asked him about it, and he said, fundamental. Like, fundamental. You find him, you know, you you uh, you react to the play, you get in a position to back up, and then, uh, you know, in his text message, he had about 15 exclamation points, Tim. He was so fired up right after the game about Riley's play. What do you well, think? He should have been because it helped win the game. But Buck Showalter always taught me to watch away from the ball. Watch the defensive players. What are they doing when they're not involved in the play? They should all be doing something. They shouldn't just be standing there. You should be backing up somewhere, something to help the play, even though you're not involved. And, And that's what Austin Riley did. I almost started to cry when I saw him back up like that because that's the way you're supposed to play the game. And I'm sorry, Buster, we're not very good at that part of the game. How many times have we seen an in, inside the park home run where there's nobody backing up the left field or center field or right field? Nobody else is moving to the ball except for the guy who made the play. Well, in this case, Austin Riley moved to the ball. And it ended up and it ended up ending the game on one of the best double plays you'll ever see. And tell us about Austin Riley, the the person. I, he's one of my favorite guys to talk to. He doesn't talk a lot, but man, there's such substance to him. Yeah, and again, this is a guy who struggled early. Then Chipper Jones got a hold of him and told him, "Look, you got a chance to be great." He's so funny talking about anything. As you know, Buster, he loves to talk about punting. So I always ask people, could you dunk a basketball? I, I'm fascinated by how good a punter he was at high school, college, and all that. And his dad was a punter. So you can get him going on, on a variety of subjects, and he's delightful on all of them, but mostly on baseball because despite all of his talent and all of his strength, he has a really good understanding of what he's doing out there. So after the Dodgers lost to the Diamondbacks last night, Dave Roberts was surprisingly blunt in basically criticizing his hitters, saying they expanded the strike zone, didn't like their bats, they had missed opportunities. Uh, you know, that's the Dodgers side of the story. On the Diamondbacks are the story side of the story, Tim, they're not afraid of the Dodgers. I think that's pretty clear. Right. And again, this is this is the trend in baseball now, Buster. You bring up a bunch of young guys who are fast and athletic and are fearless because they, they're too young to even understand. And they just say, go take it to them. And that's what the Diamondbacks have done. For the most part, that's what the Orioles did this year. That's what the Reds did after they brought up all those young kids. And I love it. I think it's a trend in the game that is going to continue. You can't be afraid of the Dodgers if you haven't played the Dodgers enough, if they haven't beaten you enough, especially at this time of year. And I think the Diamondbacks have a huge chip on their shoulder. People look at them saying, what are they even doing in the playoffs? First off, that's totally unfair. They totally belong in the playoffs. And they are taking it to the Dodgers with young, hungry, athletic kids. I love it. And, boy, we've seen this uh, story play out in baseball so often. 2011 Cardinals on the fringe of being eliminated. They come back and win the World Series. The Atlanta Braves in 2021. It was just a few weeks ago that the Diamondbacks had this brutal road trip that finishes it up in City Field. And you get Torrey Lavella pulling his players uh, out of the game because they got blown out. And I think they played, uh, that was like the 14th game out of playing 17 games in 17 days. 
and he calls his friend Dustin Pedroia, who uh, he was uh, coach when both were with the Red Sox and Torrey was the bench coach, and basically says, come and speak to our players. And Dustin Pedroia is yelling at them, saying, let's go. Uh, you know, come on. It's Don't tell me you're tired. Don't tell me. that We've got the playoffs here. Tim, they've been a different team since Pedroia talked to them. Yeah, and even before that, Tori Lavello went after his guys also once, and he's this is not like him. But you remember that time, Buster, when he said we we took some non-competitive at bats, or we've lost our focus, or we've lost our passion. He was not happy with the way that his team was playing, and they got the message because they've been they've been a really good team since. And Pedroia's <laughs> speech, I can just see him screaming at those guys. Hilarious. But again, do not underestimate the Diamondbacks. They have a good idea where they are and what they're doing. All right. The series that you're doing, the Baltimore Orioles against the Texas Rangers, I don't mean to be captain obvious, but you feel like the Orioles need to score first in game three today. Yes. Yeah, they are the best come-from-behind team in baseball, but they have to get something going to get that that Rangers, the Rangers thinking, well, we might lose this game. Because the Rangers have won four games in a row, all on the road in the postseason. Only two other teams have ever done that. And, yes, when you walk 11 guys in a game like the Orioles did, when you're starting pitcher, your two best pitchers, one doesn't get through the fifth, the other doesn't get through the second, uh, you got to start early and you got to punch the Rangers in the face. Because I'm telling you, Buster, I've seen a lot of the Rangers here. And I am really impressed with the culture in the clubhouse. I'm really impressed with the at-bats they take. Their defense is elite. It's way underrated. And when you can throw a couple of veteran pitchers out there, Evaldi, Montgomery, it's a different-looking team. And I'm very impressed with what I've seen with the Rangers. They are a wildly erratic team. They can be the worst team in the game. But then for a month, they're the best team in the game. That's who the Orioles are up against, and they just have to hope now that they're, they haven't caught the, or, the Rangers in one of their really good stretches. Yeah, and we saw last night Max Fried taking them out for the first time in 18 days. He was rusty. He was all over the place. He wasn't right. Nathan Avaldi, when he first came off the injured list on September 5th, he was like that too. Like he struggled at the outset, and now that we're a month you know, into his return from the injured list, Tim, he's a different pitcher. Uh, You know, on the podcast this week, we've talked about Carlos Correa. uh, And I think the comparison I made is I said he he is his generation's Derek Jeter in terms of his comfort level playing in the postseason. Tell me about that. Well, first off with Ivaldi, 20 and a third innings, 9.30 ERA, 13 walks, seven homers allowed in 20 innings when he came off the injured list on September the 5th. And yet, before that start in Tampa, and I cover, I covered that game, Brad Miller of the Rangers, who's a really smart guy, told me, he said, of any pitcher on this team, the Rangers, I would want Nate Evaldi in this game because he has changed the culture in our clubhouse. He is a big game pitcher. He loves the postseason. He is fearless. And he went out there and threw a six-inning gem. And by the way, Buster, uh, Josh Smith told me that um, Rangers infielder, he told me when they left spring training, all the rookies that made that the team for the first time, like made a major league team for the first time, Nate Evaldi bought every one of them a watch, a really nice, expensive watch in order to show them congratulations. You made it to the big leagues and you're with us now. That's the changing of the culture that we've seen with the Rangers. And it has a lot to do with Bruce Bochy, but it has more to do with Chris Young, former major league pitcher, brilliant guy who recognized and told me, look, we brought people in who not just could play, but were right for the clubhouse. Uh, Correa, I feel like his confidence absolutely rubs off on other players. I was thinking about that yesterday watching Sonny Gray's confidence in that press conference. I've known Sonny Gray since he was an undergrad at Vanderbilt. Uh, You know, we saw what happened in New York. The market was too big for him. He wound up being traded to Minnesota. And, And Tim, he's got a swagger today. And I think a lot of the twins do. And I do think that Correa has something to do with that. The way that, you know, he, 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 from the first day that he arrived in spring training this year, after he had that crazy winter, deal with the Giants blows up, deal with the Mets blows up, comes to the Twins, and he said to me in the first day of spring, you know what, I'm going to do what I can do to make this team a championship team. And I think he believed that. 
Oh, he did, and he's a different player at this time of year. There's no disputing what he has done in the postseason. It's corny, it's cliche, but when the lights get the brightest, that's when he's at his best. He did not have a good offensive season this year, but he did have a great defensive season, and now that the biggest games are here, he's already made one of the best defensive plays you'll see in the postseason, and he got three hits and three RBIs against his former team to help them win game two. Yeah, and then you're not even talking about the pickoff play with Vladdy, right? I yeah, mean, he, he put that pickoff play on. I mean, yeah, well, he's, he's already given us some choices. Well, I'm I'm sorry, I just can't get into bad base running now because it'll just make me because <laughs> it's the one is the only thing I can't put up with. I can put up with anything else. If you can't hit, if you can't throw a strike, if you can't catch a ground ball, but you can't make a base running mistake. It's so interesting that that Corey Steger was saying that the two most important things this time of year in the postseason are situational hitting and base running. And if you do both of those really well, you got a chance to do something in October, but you run yourself out of an inning. You make a mistake on the bases as the Orioles did in game uh, one of uh, the series. Uh, you know, that's a real problem. All right, Tim. Well, it was fun the other day when I was driving from the airport down here to Bristol Listen to you and Carl on the radio, and uh, I'm sure I'll be hearing you again today. Right. Thank It'll you. be great. It'll be great. And I got the next round ALCS. I just can't wait to see who's going to be in it. And th these series are far from over, Buster. I know we got some two O's going, but I refuse to believe in this unpredictable baseball season that things are going to go quietly from here. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform. With over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Alex Bila played 13 seasons in the big leagues. You see him on MLB Network, but he was recently asked the question by his kids. One of his kids asked him, Daddy, are you famous? Okay. And Alex, I've known you a long time, and I predicted that you would downplay it, but come on, right? Well, well tell me about your answer. Uh, well, I, I, I told her that I wasn't. <laughs> I mean, what, like you said, you've known me that? a long time. I'm I, I deflect. I always deflect the attention. You know me. <laughs> and so if they no, said her, former battery mate Justin Verlander is Justin famous, what would you say? Now what I would say, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but no, my, 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 uh, I mean, my daughters, you know, they, they are old enough. They, they saw me play and actually they see me on TV, you know, uh, on MLB network here and there. So like their friends are starting to like kind of catch on. So it's like, you know, like they'll come back from school or a friend's house like, oh, my friend so-and-so uh, Googled you and, you know, all this information came up. I'm like, well, you know, if it says I punched out four times, uh, you know, on a certain game, then that's that's pretty much it. 
<laughs> well, you know, the sad part of your resume is that you're connected with the University of Alabama and me as a Vanderbilt guy. <laughs> You know, I don't, uh, I don't appreciate that. It's funny, this whole conversation about being famous or not famous. You're going to be part of a segment that we did with Xavier Scruggs last week, which is called, You Played and I Didn't, okay? The highest I went playing baseball was in high school. Uh, so I, I'm going to present different topics for you under the guise of, You Played and I Didn't, and I need your perspective, okay? Okay. All right. Postseason pressure. You played and I didn't. Tell me how real that is and how that manifests. Uh, well, I mean, I think it's very real. And I think as, as, you, as it builds up um, over the course of the season, when you're in a position to play in the postseason, um, going into it, like you are as a player. And I mean, I'll even go as far as to like talking about it from a catching perspective with the amount of decisions you have to make behind the plate. Uh, you are going into it, you know, trying to make sure you are, I mean, as prepared, if not over-prepared with, uh, with everything that you have to try to decide upon over the course of the game to not, um, you know, end up getting caught off guard in, a, in any sort of situation in the game. So the pressure is definitely real. Uh, and there is something to be said about guys being able to slow it down over the course of the game to kind of manage that, uh, to be able to make the right decisions over the course of the game. You know what's interesting about that is is that even a veteran team like the Dodgers last night, and I don't know if you saw Dave Roberts speaking with reporters mm -hmm. after the game, he was pretty direct and blunt about his team's plate appearances. Like he felt like they expanded the strike zone, maybe guys trying to do too much in the postseason. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think I mean, you've seen that um, in these first two games with, with the L.A. where, I mean, they're a team historically been able to, to – be able to slow the game down. They actually, they work at bats. They, they, you know, typically get the, the starting pitchers pitch count up. They work their walks. They have great discipline usually. Um, and they showed that throughout the regular season and, and, and historically as a team over the last several years and to be able to do that. Um, and, you know, I think part of it too has, you know, they, you know, some of their, some of the big guys like Freddie and Mookie have, have been missing kind of those pitches that they've, that typically, you know, hammer. Um, whether it's just like they just miss it, it's a pop-up or something like that. So you don't, you know, you haven't been seeing that kind of production. So, you know, when they chase and the rest of the lineup goes out of the zone or, you know, they don't get those, those, those hits that they usually get, it, it's kind of magnified. But I would agree with that for sure because, you know, when you're having trouble, trouble scoring runs, that's typically the, the, the reason or that you, something you can look to that, hey, we're just, we're not, we're missing the pitches that we should be hitting. And because of that, we're trying to do too much and hit pitches we know we can't really handle do damage with. Alex, I've always felt like these in-division playoff matchups are a little bit different uh, in, in terms of uh, it is the what's underneath them. Uh, you know, in particular in this series, Diamondbacks versus Dodgers reminds me of those days when, like, the Rays – would have an you know a playoff matchup against the Yankees or the Red Sox, a team that they would see a lot. I mm -hmm. I feel like the awe goes away. Uh, right. But you played and I didn't. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. No, it does. And and I've played in that that um, that rivalry not so much in the playoffs, uh, but you know Diamondbacks Dodgers, and there is a bit of a rivalry there. Um, you know, mainly for the fact that as a, as a, as an Arizona player, a lot of times when the Dodgers come into town, uh, to Phoenix, I mean, it's largely, you know, LA Dodger fans there. Um, so the players, they notice that you notice that as an Arizona Diamondback player. So it's, there, there is a rivalry there because of it. And my first year playing for the Diamondbacks, we actually led the division for the first five months of the season and the Dodgers ended up you know, coming in and, and, um, and, um, you know, ended up being in first place that year and we ended up missing the playoffs, but that rivalry is real. And throughout the year going into the postseason, you're right. That kind of aura or just the, um, the, the typical, like just unknown that you would get in the playoffs facing a team that you don't face as, as often kind of goes away when you're facing that in division rival, uh, in, in, the in the playoffs. And, um, you know, like that's the thing that the, the Diamondbacks are used to, even though they hadn't had that much success in, in Chavez Ravine, you know, they're used to going in there 
you know, several times a year to play the Dodgers. So, you know, that's something that's not really a factor to them where it could, it could have been for a different team. The way that the Phillies pitched Austin Riley last night, uh, they attacked him with fastballs in his first plate appearances. And I don't know if it's, you know, mechanical issue with Austin. I don't know if uh, it's just late in the season, but his bat seemed a little bit slower. Zach Wheeler's blowing the ball past him early in that, uh, you know, that uh, plate appearance that resulted in a home run. Jeff Hoffman's blowing the ball past him and they throw him a slider. But you played, and I didn't. Uh, <laughs> does that question make sense to you? Because uh, I, I was uh, really surprised I, they threw him a slider. You know, well, you may have not played, but as long as you've covered the game, I'm glad you asked that. You're, you're, you're asking that question because I, I thought about it watching that game and seeing the home run that, that Riley hit off Hoffman. Um, and, and, again, a lot of times when I'm watching these games, like a lot of people see the home run. But then I'll think about like if I'm like JT behind the plate calling the pitches, and um, and you're right, you know, throughout the game, even throughout the series, you know, Riley's been getting beat by the fastball, especially anything kind of 95 plus. And for what it's worth, like who knows? But you know, he's a good fastball hitter. And you know, so like when I'm behind the plate, and I, I was kind of putting myself in JT's shoes there. Where, you know, Hoffman's throwing 98 miles an hour and, and Riley was having a hard time catching up to it. You know, was able to, that strike two, fastball up in the zone, swung right through, definitely late on the fastball. But Hoffman has a good slider as well that can get the swing and miss. So you have two plus pitches. So as a catcher, when you're kind of going through the sequence and you know you're facing a, a, one of the best hitters in the game, one of the better power hitters in the game, that it's that constant battle of like, when is he going to make the adjustment? Is he going to cheat on this, on this fastball? Do I call another fastball here? Or do I go to the slider knowing that he's the type of hitter that's able to make an adjustment from pitch to pitch. And that's that battle that you have as a catcher when you're calling a game going back and forth. And sometimes, you know, it's, you make the wrong call. And I don't even think it was really the wrong call. He actually got him off, off balance and it was way on front. He was almost kind of in between. Um, but it was just enough on the plate to where he was able to, you know, just kind of stay through the zone long enough. If that ball is maybe, you know, two inches, um, you know, to the outside corner of the plate, it's either a swing and miss or a ground ball out. And, you know, it, it's easy to go back and look at it, but I know like once that home home run happened, like I just kind of put myself back in, in, in behind the plate in JT's shoes where I've been there, where it's like, you're kind of going back and forth with, how to get this guy out, knowing that he's a great hitter and he can make adjustments pitch to pitch. Yeah, during the year, Riley hit 205 against sliders. And even if he had thrown exactly. a backup slider, he probably just yanks it foul, right? Uh, right. If he had no, missed yeah. two inches on that side of the plate, too, so maybe that was. Michael Harris's catch in the ninth inning, just talking about specifically about the catch, uh, what mm-hmm. had struck me about him playing center field is he has so much comfort on the warning track and against the fence. I've seen a lot of outfielders, once they get close to the fence, they get a little bit shy. He reminds right. me of Ken Griffey Jr. in his level of comfort making plays around the fence. But you played and I didn't. You know, what do you think? No, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, Ken, uh, you know, Jr.'s a that's a high comparison. But, like, I mean, that's – you're right. His comfort going back on the ball to, you know, onto the warning track and, and just knowing having his, his awareness of where the fence is and how many steps he has from the beginning of the warning track to the, to the fence. You could tell like he practices that. And obviously in, in his home park, he has incredible awareness of where that fence is at all times. Um, because it looks like it definitely does that he has, um, the ability to be able to go back on balls and, and play them as about as well as anybody up against the fence. Time his jumps correctly because um, we've seen play. He's made several plays, you know, over the course of his young career, going back on balls like that um, and covering ground. And then, but it, it never looks. Like, I, I mean, I understand your comparison to Griffey because it doesn't look. Um, it doesn't look like he's putting much effort into it. It's almost like he knows exactly where he needs to be in order to make the catch and not crash into the wall where, you know, the ball pops out of his glove. Like, it's always, like, kind of perfectly done. And it was, I mean, definitely probably one of the, the, the best plays of our show. We, ha- we, we haven't seen that play uh, that ever. So that, that was a pretty impressive catch by Harris. Yeah, there's a comfort level. 
Uh, he's in control. He, he never, and it doesn't seem like there's any fear, but not because he's not aware of the possibility of crashing of the fence, but because he's so under control. Like there's no right. fear in what he's doing in the way that he moves. All right, Austin Riley, you know, last night on Baseball Tonight, uh, they showed the Michael Harris catch as a web gem. And I said, no, there need to be two web gems on this play because Austin <laughs> Riley backing up that play. Tell me about that. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it, you, you could tell, like, you know, from the different camera ang- angles, once that once Harris catches that ball, you can see Riley trying to, you know, make sure he's, you know, either Arcia or Albies hears him, um, you know, to, to throw the ball back to first, to go back to first, to go back to first. And as he's doing that, he's kind of working his way towards second base, towards the play. And, you know, credit to him to to have the awareness at least to, you know, be going towards where the play is. Um, and, you know, the, the, the ball ended up getting past both, you know, Albies and, and Arcia, um, you know, and him being able to be there. It's like right play or, you know, right place, right time. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say like, well, he was completely thinking I got to back this play up. I think he was trying to make sure he, you know, those guys heard him. Um, to get the ball to first, um, and his just kind of you know baseball savvy, baseball you know IQ was taking him towards the play, um, you know which that you know that's what you're supposed to do. That's what, you know that's why when you, when guy, when people talk about um, you know baseball IQ, IQ, baseball savvy, that's that's what that is. It's it's you know making sure you're you're aware of of your surroundings and where you need to be at all times, even if the ball is not hit to you. And that's what he did. And he made a, a, an incredibly strong throw on the run, on the backhand, almost like if he was playing a slow roller, charging, charging in. And because uh, it was only going to take a perfect strong throw in order to get Bryce there, even though Bryce was you know, a little farther than he, he wanted to be. This was a guy who was a dominant pitcher in high school. I texted Ron Washington, the third base coach, after the game. As you know, he worked with their infielders. And I said, give me, give me your view on that play. And he just texted back, fundamentals backing up plays. He was so excited. Yeah. I think he included 18 exclamation points in his text message back uh, <laughs> with that one. It was fun. Well, uh, it's just, the, I, I, tends to go unnoticed sometimes. And, and even like when you're watching the game back, highlights, things like that, like it's never a highlight, you know, until you make it a highlight. And, um, and it, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of things that just, you know, they, they go they, they go unnoticed or you know, guys don't typically work on all the time because it's boring and um, you know not not as not as, not as flashy as as, uh, as your great plays but uh, it's important when it comes to winning a game all right I got two more quick ones for you uh, your old battery mate Justin Verlander the Astros continue to move forward he continues to move forward in his career he's got 257 regular season wins that I've been saying on the podcast and trying to explain to people how badly he wants 300 and you know, you get people who say, well, he's 40 years old. There's no way he's going to do that. And I've had this conversation with Justin. He is, he is really focused on 300. And, and, I, and to me, anybody who's downplaying that is out of their minds. Like it, right. his drive with that. Um, you played, I didn't, you caught Verlander. I didn't. What do you think about 300 wins for Justin? So I've had this conversation with other people too. And I've had several people like, there's no way, there's no way, um, you know, cause that is a decent amount of wins for a guy that, that, you know, just turned 40 to have to, you know, a cure, um, you know, over the course of the next few years. But I mean, I do not put it past Justin at all. I know that's something, that's a goal of his. Um, but I also know that he wants to pitch till he's 45. So, you know, Right. Who's not to say that he he can't win enough? You know the, the amount of games he needs to win to get to three hundred, and you know with just knowing him, knowing his work ethic, um, I, I mean I, I I put the chances at better, um, you know than than most people think because uh, just knowing him as well as I do that that's I think it's more of a possibility than a lot of people think. All right. And last one, uh, the Dodgers are not only planning to extend their season in game three, but also planning to get uh, the ball in the hands of Clayton Kershaw at least one more time. We don't know what Kershaw is going to do in 2024. It's possible that that game he started the other night uh, was the last start of his career, which for me would be really kind of, you know, sad. It wouldn't take away from what he's accomplished because he has such preeminence within the sport. I talked to one of your peers yesterday. He told me he gets text messages all the time from current players about Kershaw. 
Tell me about mm-hmm. the the respect for Kershaw within the game. Well, I th- I, I, he's one of the most um, respected players, and not just like currently in baseball, but I think you know when you look at it historically, um, you know he he is one of the best pitchers ever to pitch. So, like you said, I, I think his you know the, the his game one starts, um, even though it leaves a bad taste. Um, and hopefully he gets another crack at it in, uh, in game four. Um, it does not whatsoever, I think, uh, kind of diminish anything because he is, you know, when you look at his body of work, one of the greatest pitchers to ever pitch in the history of the game. And uh, he is, you know, one of the most well-respected players and people, you know, human beings uh, in our sport. So um, I hope it's not. I hope he gets another crack at it in game four because I think he'll pitch uh, much better. And, um, you know, so time will tell, but he is, he is definitely a treasure, um, of our sport that, you know, should be celebrated. Yeah. All right, Alex, thanks for doing this. And yes, tell your daughters, you are a big deal. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> thanks. Buster. I appreciate it. <laughs> This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com and a huge baseball fan, as has been established in the podcast over and over and over again. When uh, Austin Riley hits that home run last night to give the Braves a lead, paint the picture for your reaction at your place. Oh, my gosh. I mean, obviously not rooting for any team in particular, but it was such an exciting moment. I I think I screamed or something like, and oh my gosh, like it was one of those because it wasn't just that go ahead and run with two outs and wall trailing and all that, but it was so majestic. There's certain types of home runs to left field, specifically in that ballpark, they feel like they will never land. Even if they're not 500-foot home runs or even 450, there's something about home runs to left field, specifically in Atlanta there, that look just out, out of this world. And it was one of those. So, you know, so happy for Austin Riley, the person, the player, the team. And, you know, I mean, it's good for baseball. For a team that led the majors in runs, runs per game, had 104 wins, all of this to show that they're not going quietly. I know there's been a lot of discussion, narratives about, oh, the best teams are losing, so on and so forth. And so it was a really good moment for all of that as well. Yeah, it was like, I've been compar- comparing this to Ali Frazier. This was like the Braves coming off the ropes. Right. And finishing around with a flurry. And all of a sudden we got ourselves a fight now. One to one going to Philadelphia. All right. Let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is two. So let's talk about how that game ended. Two outs of double play. The first eight five three double play in postseason history. Michael Ayers, the second two. Who else? Austin Riley picking that ball up to first base to Matt Olson. It was also the first double play involving an outfielder to end a postseason game ever. So an outfield assist double play, we do, we see them all the time. They happen. They happen in the playoffs. We had never seen one to end a postseason game. And, I mean, just incredible. We're awesome, Riley, of all players, after hitting that home run, to be the one with the awareness to see what was happening with that play, pick up that ball in the infield <laughs> because the moment that uh, Michael Harris made that catch, I think I screamed sling then too. And then the ball looked like it was going to roll around the infield and I was really stressed out. And then there was Austin <laughs> Riley picking it up and throwing the first. So just an unreal sequence. And Brian Anderson's call with it's over, it's over at the end was so, so perfect. Just capturing all of the emotion. I heard Boog's call also outstanding, but I was listening live on TV. Number two. Number two is three. So the other incredible part is, you know, this game had 
I'm sitting here trying to research a 5-3 double plays, double plays and a postseason game with an outfielder, all of that. Meanwhile, it's already 3 nothing in LA. So the Diamondbacks have now scored at least three runs in the first inning of each of the first two games of the NLDS. They're the third team all time to score at least three runs in the first inning. Each of the first two games of a postseason series, the A's in the ALDS in 2002, and the Cardinals did in the NLDS in 2000. Again, that's the NE series. Only one team has had three games at any point in one postseason series where they score at least three runs. In the first inning, it was the 93 Blue Jays in the World Series. So if the Diamondbacks score three, whether it's the next game or whether we get a game four, what have you, that would be tying the Blue Jays there. Number one. Number one is zero. For how many times Taylor's Orioles were swept during the regular season? We talked about this stat a lot. They have not been swept in the in the series in the regular season, dating back to not actually Adley Rushman being called up in the series before in the series right before he was called up. They played the Rays. They were not swept in that one, and since then they have this unreal streak. It's the third longest in baseball history. And now here they are on Tuesday, October 10th, on the verge of potentially being swept in the postseason. So again, won't snap the streak that they have in the regular season, but we need some context here. So the Orioles are the 17th team to reach the playoffs, having not been swept in that regular season, including 2020. Of the prior 16, only one of those teams had a postseason series they were swept out of. It was Bruce Bochy's 1998 Padres. So now Bruce Bochy's Rangers have a chance to return the favor and be the second team to make this happen, make the Euros the second team to do them. I found this late at night, uh, not last night, but the night before, after the Orioles have lost that second game. And I was just absolutely losing it that we have 16 teams prior to do this. And the one that was swept in the postseason was, of course, Butch's team. And then here he is on the other side of it now. We'll see what happens. But I just thought that was a really cool way to uh, contextualize them. A hundred percent. And it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, how that winds up later today. Uh, you're going to be joining the podcast on Wednesday. So I'm wondering if you could give us this number. I just talked to Alex Avila about Justin Verlander and his chances for 300 wins. You know, Alex is going to have some special perspective on that. So can is there a way for you to give us a number on that to, in tomorrow's podcast? Like the uh, odds, statistical odds for Verlander to get to 300. Because whatever number you generate, Alex will tell you there's a better chance than what that number says. I was going to say I'll take a look, but I don't think we can put the intangibles of Justin Verlander being Justin Verlander into a number, but I'll try. Okay. All right, Sarah, good to see you and uh, have fun today. Awesome. You too. Thanks for having me. Bleacher Tweets. All righty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Tuesday. RL Foxy T-Rex writes in, all the Dodgers D-backs talk seems to be about how the Dodgers lost rather than how the D-backs won. Any thoughts? Can we get some respect in the desert? Yeah, I, I, look, I hear you. Uh, we talked about the Diamondbacks with, with Alex, with Tim, about how uh, you know when they play the Dodgers, they're not looking up at the Dodgers as like a big brother. There is a lot of confidence there. Um, you know, great job by Zach Gallon last night. Great job by their bullpen. But here's the reality. The Dodgers are a 100-win team, and they have a future Hall of Famer whose career might be coming to an end. Those are not minor storylines. Yep, yep. Matt Clicker of Bobbleheads, Kayaking Smith writes, and if we don't hear this full audio clip on the podcast in the morning, I'm going to be upset. He sent along Ben Ingram's call of Riley's home run and the game-ending double play. We can listen to it now. 3-2 pitch. 
And he hits a high fly ball, deep left field, back to the wall, and it's gone! Austin Riley hitting him where it hurts, and the Braves take the lead in the eighth. Harris back to the warning track, he leaps, Michael's got it! He's got it! They fire it in, and it rolls across the infield, taken by Riley, he throws to the back! They double him off! Ball game over! Braves win! I've never seen a play like that! Oh! Matt, thanks for sending <laughs> that in. That was awesome. Oh, that was good. Much appreciated. Yeah. Noah writes in, uh, that was compelling theater last night with the Phillies and Braves. It went from a possible blowout to a compelling series in a matter of innings. That's the postseason drama you wish for. The heavyweight title fight buster. You've been crowing about it. Yes. And you know what? And that was last night. The Braves doing a little rope-a-dope coming off the ropes when we thought they were dead. Yeah. P.K. Steinberg writes in, I was a runner-up uh, armchair manager in the year 2018, but I was thinking it was a mistake to keep Wheeler in for the seventh. P.K., I thought that Rob Thompson went one batter too long with Wheeler. You know, he was so good, and I understand Rob, you know, his confidence in him, but the Olsen played appearance. I was like, oh, boy. I, I just uh, that didn't seem like a good spot to keep him in the game. Last one for today, Sarah Gillespie at a typical faith rights and dear bleacher tweets is any team with time off doing well right now. The postseason setup doesn't work well for the top teams. Big point of discussion, Buster. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, for me, it's really easy. Just give the number one seeds, the number one and number two seeds the choice. Do you want to have the buy or do you want to keep playing through the first week? And that way, and you you know and I know, Taylor, 100% of them would choose the buy because mm-hmm. they would want to bypass the injury risk. They'd want to uh, rest their relievers. But at least then we, we could talk about, we could st- you know end the complaining about it. Like yeah. give the teams a choice. You want to play all the way through the first week? Let's do it. You know, go ahead. Mm-hmm. But they will all <laughs> bypass that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, that's it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter while you're watching the games tonight. Go's Horn. Yeah, and by the way, that complaining I referenced, that's coming from my son, the Braves fan. Like all yesterday, <laughs> the texts, and then I'm like, dude, dude, Enough. like all of them, like every team that gets a bye would choose the bye over playing straight through. For sure. So please, let's just make it official. Let them officially choose it so we don't have the complaining every year. That's it for today. My thanks to Alex Bila, to Sarah, to Tim, Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and remember, remember, Hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.